Welcome back to Endurance Icons, where we sit down with individuals excelling and inspiring in the wide world of endurance sports. We are your hosts, Mark and Jessica Cullen, and our guest on the podcast today is pro triathlete Justin Metzler. He's been a pro on the circuit for a long time, and he's amassed five uh, wins over the um, time within his pro triathlon career. And he's also coming off a great 2022 that saw him grab five 70.3 podiums and a win at 70.3 Oregon. So we're pumped to have Justin on today. How are you doing, Justin? Welcome. Yeah, I'm doing good. Thanks so much for having me. Pleasure to be on. Well, thanks for joining us. And uh, Justin, where are you joining us from today? I am in Longmont, Colorado, which is uh, the town right across from uh, Boulder. So kind of the triathlon mecca of the U.S. So, and yeah, so you've chosen this for your training base. Why have you done that? Yeah, you know, I moved out here in late 2014. Um, I went to college uh, in Iowa, University of Iowa. I grew up in the Midwest, <clears throat> and then I was pretty much just living outside of my Jeep. And um, I just had pretty much everything I owned in the back and yeah, like was bumming on people's couches and stuff. And then I had a buddy who said, Hey, come out, you can sleep on my couch. And I just came here and fell in love with the mountains and the culture here, the people, um, the training is some of the best that I've found in, in the U S for, for sure. Um, and I've been, you know, in a lot of places around the world training and, and racing. And I just, found that this was a really cool place to to call home and, and kind of settle in. And then I met my wife, Jeannie here. And next thing you know, been here 10 years. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. It's uh, I've been there a few times and it's, it's one of my favorite places in the world, I think. So um, what was your training like today? Today I did a two and a half hour hard ride on, on the trainer on Zwift. Um, yeah, sort of like, uh, you know, we're doing um, some of the new like uh, lactate based training. So what we call like a, an LT2 session um, and sort of like pushing into the, the VO2 max area. So, yeah, the, the main set is you do a 20 minute uh, block in the in the warm up um, kind of around Ironman pace. And then it's four by 15 minutes um, just sub threshold with two minutes recovery. So not a lot of recovery. Um, so, yeah, did that indoors. And, and then this afternoon. I'll, uh, I'll go to the pool and I'll swim with, um, Ian O'Brien's squad. Um, Ian coaches, uh, Taylor Nib, who just won, um, 70.3 world championship. So she'll be there. And then a, a bunch of other up and coming ITU athletes. And so he lets me join because, uh, we're friends and I see him around the pool. I'm not coached by him, but I just pop into their, their squad. So I'll do that this afternoon. Swimming is always easier when you have some people to push you, but, uh, it also is probably helpful to live in a training Mecca like that, to have such incredible people to swim alongside. Um, yeah. so your path to professional triathlon, I know that you've been, uh, you know, racing pro for almost a decade. How did you get into the sport? Sure. Yeah. So my dad actually was doing Ironman and Ironman 70.3s when I was growing up. Um, he originally started doing triathlon um, because they had a, a weight loss competition at his work. And he wasn't super overweight by any means, but he's a really competitive guy. He played football in college and he wanted to beat his friends. And then I think he was just working out at like the rec center. I grew up in, a, in this place called Glenview, Illinois, a suburb of Chicago. And so he just saw a sign up for a local indoor triathlon. He signed up thinking it'd be a good way to lose a bunch of weight quickly. Um, and so he signed up, did the race. I think he won the competition or came second. And then he kind of got the triathlon bug from there. Um, that was probably when I was like maybe 10 years old. And then I saw him doing triathlon. I always was obsessed with sports. Um, I played traditional sports, baseball and basketball. 
And then when I got to high school, I just didn't really like have like the chops to cut it. I went to a pretty competitive high school for both basketball and baseball. And I just like was a late bloomer, wasn't big enough, strong enough, any of that. And then um, my dad kind of saw me, you know, falling down this, the, a path of not really having a direction. He said, why don't you just come train with me? And pretty much from that point forward, I was pretty obsessed with doing triathlons and following the pro triathletes. And from, you know, when I was 12 years old, I, I pretty much said, I want to be a professional triathlete and haven't looked back since. <laughs> Who were some of those people that inspired you when you were that age? Uh, on the professional side, like right when I got going, it was Craig Alexander and Chrissy Wellington were the two like, um, sort of people really, um, hitting it. And then, you know, they were winning their Ironman world championship, uh, titles around that time. And so I got really into following their stories and their background and where they trained. And that's sort of where I first started here at Boulder because Crowey lived here and Chrissy trained here. Um, you know, you had all these iconic roads and, and cycling routes or whatever that for me were just like a, I don't know, seemed like a fairy tale type land that I always wanted to, I always aspired to get to. And um, funny enough, at the time, I actually, the Chicago triathlon was a really big professional triathlon at the time. So I would always go down to like the expo and and um, stand in line to get autographs. Um, some of my idols were uh, this guy named Matt Reed, who was winning a lot of the Olympic non-draft races at the time. and then. Um, Tim O'Donnell was the top American, um, pretty much going around at the long course circuit. He had been top 10 in Kona a couple times. And then, um, Julie Dibbins was also on the podium in Kona, I think around that time. And so those were sort of my idols. I had a, I had a poster of Julie and Tim along with, um, I think Joe Gambles was on that poster, Fraser Cartmel, um, Chris Lieto. They were all part of this like Trek K Swiss team. Um, and I had a poster of them in my room. And so a lot of those people are actually my friends now, or some, some of them are like my mentors and friends. So that's kind of like a full circle little that's moment. That's so cool <laughs> to make your, your mentors or the people who inspired you, your, your friends. Um, yeah. okay. So you decided that you wanted to be a professional triathlete at the age of 12, which quite frankly, I think would make a lot of people feel a little bit envious because to have that level of clarity of what you want to do is pretty impressive. Um, what did you do when you were 12? Um, and in those, those coming years to sort of prepare, um, I know that's a big statement to make when you're 12. Um, so what, what did your early years look like as you were starting to add triathlon to your life? Yeah. I don't know if like right at the inception, it was as, um, <laughs> as clear at the time, I think like, you know, in hindsight, looking at that, um, with, with the perspective I have now, it probably was pretty clear, but I, I definitely was passionate about it first mm -hmm. straight away. And I think I was passionate about the fact that it was, it was different. Like no one in my, no kids in my town did triathlon. Um, it allowed me to spend a lot of time with my dad and, and hang out with him. And we trained together all the time and, and that thing. And then pretty quickly, uh, it was really just like a social thing um, for me to do with him and his friends and something unique for me to do something for me to have identity. Like I was a kid who just did triathlons. Um, and so that really, for me, it was about identity before, before anything else, before speed or before like trying to win or, or have accomplishments or whatever. In fact, like when I first started, I was actually really slow. Um, my first 10 K I think was over an hour, my first 10 K running race. Um, I think I had a five K PR and, you know, 30 minutes in 13, 14 age range. You know, my, we were just, if we did seven miles on the weekend for a long run, my dad and I, we were like ecstatic. That was huge. Mm -hmm. Um, and so 
that was the first couple of years, but then pretty quickly, like I started running, um, track and cross country in high school that helped my running progress pretty quickly, still nowhere near like a, a national level or even, or even a regional level. Like was, I was, I was a sub a below average runner, um, throughout all of high school, but I was, I was doing triathlon and starting to get a little bit of like success on the local level. And I think I started winning my age group at like, you know, my local Glenview triathlon. And then I would race sort of in Wisconsin and in it. Indiana and other sort of like Midwest events. Um, and then over the course of about a year, like, I don't know, I went through puberty, I got really tall and really skinny and I kind of figured out how to swim and I just became obsessed with training. And I would say like kind of my last year or two of high school, I started training upwards of like 20, 25 hours a week. And then I started just like dominating everything. <laughs> um, <laughs> And so that was fun. Um, and that, that, that really was a cool thing for me because it was never about like really being competitive. Like I'm a very competitive guy, but I was always just like, I don't know. I felt like I was on the losing end of most competitive things I attempted before that. And then to finally get like a little bit of confidence, um, do this triathlon thing. I was like, all right, let's see how far I can push it. And so, yeah, from there it really snowballed quickly. And I qualified for my professional racing license when I was 19. Um, and, I didn't take it the first year, but then, um, I took it the following year. So like right when I turned 20, um, like 19 going on 20, I was racing professionally. And, and you know, it makes sense that you were so successful because I love how you stated that you made it an identity. It wasn't just something that you did. It was part of who you are. Um, and mm -hmm. so it's, it's so neat to hear your progression and, and how you went all in at 19. Um, so when the people who are looking at professional triathletes from the outside in, it looks, you know, we posters are on the wall. They see, you know, the social media, they see you at races and there's, I would say it's almost hero worship where you look at, I'm inspired by this person. Um, you know, it looks like a lot of really great travel, um, but one of the things that we've uncovered is that there's, there are challenges, um, to the life of a professional triathlete. And I'd love to hear a little bit about, you know, what are some of the challenges that you face, um, in your, in your career? Yeah. I mean, that's evolved quite a lot over the course of, of racing for 10 years. Um, in hindsight, the early years were the easiest, the challenges I think become harder, the more you're trying to push the envelope of what's possible. And, um, and yeah, the more you try to make it like a yeah legitimate career. I think when I first started my, my rookie season, there were no problems, everything. I, I can't even recall like one thing that was like, wow, that was a big issue. Um, you know, I came on the scene, uh, my, my final amateur race in 2013, I, I think I won the amateur field at this, uh, half Ironman in Venice, Florida by like over 30 minutes. I think I went like 355 or something, which at the time, like pros were racing at 355. Um, and then from there turned pro in 2014. And uh, I was USA triathlon rookie of the year. Like I, I think I made like $10,000 in prize money my first season in 2014, which was like Amazing. enough for me to, it was awesome. Like that was enough for me to cover the gas that I needed to get from race to race and the flights from like Iowa city where I was going to college to like wherever I needed to race. So I was like, I like to say I was like, full-time triathlete, part-time student. I was still going back to school, but like, yeah, I, I was leaving the race, you know, mm -hmm. a whole bunch. Um, and, and those were like, those were some of the best years I was racing really well, like training amazing. Like I did just, 
ignorance was bliss at that time. I didn't know anything. I was just like pushing the training to the limit, pushing the travel to the limit, like barely sleeping, not really eating, having an idea of like what nutrition was or recovery or anything. I was just like going on the fly. And then um, from there, I think once I graduated school and like didn't have a job per se, like my parents were always incredibly supportive and like they would always help me like I needed help the first couple of years, like mm-hmm. just to survive because you can't live off $10,000 like for the whole year. Um, so they would send me like, I don't know, I think it was like $400 a month to like help me pay for food and like get, you know, if I was sleeping on someone's couch, like give them a couple hundred dollars to like figure out how I was going to like have a roof over my head. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was my biggest stress from like year two to year five was like, how am I going to make enough money to live? That was the biggest stress. And that was like something I stressed about every single day. It was like waking up in the morning and saying like, I don't know how I'm going to put this together. Like, how do I get sponsors? How do I get paying sponsors? How, like, what do I do? Um, And so at the time, what I was doing was racing a lot, like a ton. Um, Mm. I think 2016 or 2017, I raced 1370.3s. Wow. So that was a lot. Yeah. <laughs> I raised from March to December, um, pretty much because I could make a thousand dollars profit on a race on average. And that was enough to float me for the month. And then on top of that, like I was really fortunate to have some good, um, like product sponsorship at the time I was part of these like, uh, teams, like I was part of this time extra on team that must've been from 2016 to 2019. Um, and I would get the gear and then sell it on eBay to make money. <laughs> Whatever works. Hell yeah. 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 Resourceful. So I, I was making it happen. Um, but definitely still like finances were a huge stress. And then um, as I'd sort of established my career a little bit, like that became less of a stress. And now I would say my current biggest stress is um, like trying to break through to the be one of the best. And I feel like I'm not there, but I'm on the cusp of that. And so um, because of that, I've gotten injured for the first time in my career, which has been super stressful. Um, And then also like now I'm married and I have a lot more like adult responsibilities to like (laughs) take care of my wife. And like, we have a house now and like, I have to pay taxes and not not like I didn't pay them before, but I actually like have to worry about stuff like that now. so I would say like more normal adult stuff is my biggest stress now. And then also just like pushing the limits of, of kind of what's possible for anybody trying to be a professional, you know, what, what did you go through? If you haven't had, like, it sounds like you were able to race and race and race and not get injured and keep, you know, killing it, doing these incredible results. And then suddenly you're experiencing your first injury. What did you go through in order to, cause I imagine that that was, that was devastating for someone who's never been injured before. How did you manage that? Well, at first I didn't, I just completely ignored it, which this is like probably a good learning lesson for anyone um, who's listening. Like, don't do that. And that was pretty much just the short version of it was I started experiencing some like Achilles pain um february 2022 so the beginning of last year kind of like one year ago and i had qualified for kona which ultimately had gotten turned into ironman st george um world championships in st george so next thing you know like i was preparing for a world championship in may 
and really pushing the limits of my training off uh, a short off season break. Like I didn't take much of a break at all. And then next thing you know, I'm, I'm really trying to get ready to compete with the best in the world. And that just flared up my foot. And I kind of, it was kind of in a holding pattern from getting like slightly worse from February to June. And then I pretty much, I think I tore my Achilles tendon partial tear, but yeah, tore my Achilles tendon in, in August on a training run. And then I just kind of limped my way through the rest of the season because mm -hmm. of the stress and the pressure of having to like compete and continue to deliver um, these results. Cause I was already having a good season. Like I already had, you know, one 70.3, like I had two podiums already. Like I was in good shape, like great conditioning, great, you know, aerobic shape. The only thing holding me back was my foot. So um, I was just kind of like masking the pain with whatever I could to get through training and racing. And um, that was it. And so that's kind of put me to where I am, where I was finishing the 2022 season was like, finally I said, okay, well, this thing's not right. And, you know, I went through the whole process of like, okay, get an MRI, um, go see the doctor, go see the surgeon, try to figure out what to do with this thing. And so I, I feel like now I'm coming out of it. Like I've experienced, um, the first time I ha have been without pain in about a year has been like the last two weeks. So, um, we're getting there. <laughs> Congratulations. That's a big deal. Yeah. An Thanks. interesting, an interesting thing we've actually seen on a lot of the podcasts and you, you were talking about breakthroughs there a little bit is a lot of the people we've talked to have actually seen that something like an injury has been the catalyst to help them like find, uh, like redefining their training and changing some, some things that have actually allowed them to like go to a whole new level. Uh, I think you kind of alluded to it the other day, even on your social media, that it's actually been like a chance for you to double down on like some of your bike fitness and stuff like that. Um, are you using this? Maybe it could be kind of a blessing in disguise for you. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I'm a glass half full kind of person. So that's how I look Love at the it. world. And so for me, everything is an opportunity and the, I'm taking this and I've really tried to make the best out of the, out of the situation. So, I mean, that has shown a huge improvement in my cycling just because I can ride. I've shown a huge improvement in my swimming because I can swim. And I'm also one of those people who it's like, when I think of training, I'm trying to do everything I possibly can. And so I've been, I've spent 40 hours on an elliptical. I've been walking hundreds of miles, you know, over the course of the last three months, um, because I can walk without pain, right? I can hike without pain. I can get an elliptical without pain. I can do gym work without pain. Like I can ride and swim and whatever. So I'm, I'm doing everything I possibly can. Um, you know, someone might look at it and say, Hey, dude, you're wasting your time with the elliptical. But for me, it's a, it's a no stone unturned sort of approach. And if I can't run, I'm just trying to do the next best thing. And so, I mean, the proof will be in the pudding when I get back to racing, like was all that worth worth it? Or am I really seriously far behind on my run? And I, I need to get back. I think there is going to be definitely like a curve, but I feel like I'm, I'm hopefully a bit ahead of it. Um, and yeah, we'll just, we'll, we'll see in May when I, when I get back May or June, depending on, on our timeline here, but, um, I'm doing everything I can. So hopefully my cycling and my swimming are really up there and, uh, my run's always been this, a sort of strength. So hopefully it comes back quick. Well, Natasha Wodak, who we've had on the podcast would, I would think, uh, say that the elliptical is a, or elliptical is a great, uh, tool because she spends, I think it's three training sessions a week on the elliptical and she just set the Canadian, uh, female marathon record. So, 
um okay i'll take fingers that. crossed <laughs> that it's it's yeah. gonna produce some great things for you this year cool Love it. yeah um I wanted to hop a little bit back to that um, Coeur d'Alene race um, where you got your first Kona qualification because I, I really enjoyed following your like YouTube uh, channel and and the story leading up to that. And it was clearly like that was a huge moment for you, a huge breakthrough, getting your first Kona qualification as somebody who's done this sport for so long, followed it and getting to like the mecca of long course triathlon. Um, first of all, maybe tell me like, what was that like? And then second of all, what was it like when it became St. George and not Kona? Did you still like see it as the same thing or was it totally different? <laughs> yeah. Well, to answer the second question first, it wasn't the same. And I couldn't get behind that race as much as I wanted to, or I felt like I needed to, to be competitive at a world championship event. I think a lot of the guys who you saw be, and women who you saw be successful there had already raced in Kona. So they maybe had like that emotional experience already of like kind of ticking that Kona box and just getting that career milestone out of the way. So they could potentially have approached St. George with a little bit more of the mindset of this is a world championship and there's a world title on the line and it's upper grab. So let's go for it. But I mean, I still think like, even in hindsight, there's an asterisk around St. George and the performances around St. George, it just wasn't Kona. Um, say what you will, like Christian Blumenfeld is a world Ironman world championship, but I think he would even say like, it's, I am not an Ironman world championship champion in Kona. That's a different thing. Um, so yeah, I mean, I just, I, I struggled around getting, getting around that race, like um, getting my head around it, get, you know, getting motivated for it. Like I trained a whole bunch there and I just, I, I like St. George, but I've never raced well there. Like even in the 70.3s, I've raced the 70.3 three times. And I just, it's not a course that really suits me very well. And so I don't know, I just was, I felt like it was an uphill battle in the training block going into that race. Um, but to step back to potentially a, a more positive um, question is is the first one of hey what um where was your head at after qualifying for Kona let's just completely ignore the St George bit <laughs> at the time I was like my mind was it had exploded I mean that for me it was a win you know um, and I think like I was really I'm really motivated by Kona because that's that's been a dream for a long time, you know, having watched the race on TV for 15 years and obsessed about it and watched um, the guys and, and, the, and the women be so, you know, a lot of my friends be successful there and, and whatever, like, yeah, that's always going to hold something special. But I think that Coeur d'Alene performance in particular, like I really surprised myself with what I was capable of, not only in the race itself, but in the training going in, um, it was just perfect. Like it really was like, not obviously not perfect. Nothing's ever perfect, but it was in my career, the best string of training that I've ever been able to put together. Um, I had the most amount of confidence I've ever had going into a race, but it wasn't arrogance. And I think like, there's like a, a line there that we all play as, as pros. Um, I was just really ready to go. And it was just one of those days where you just feel like you're, I don't know, you're out of body experience type situation. Um, so to cross the line in second and, and be within striking distance of, of Sam who won, um, I was, I was really elated with the performance. Um, and yeah, it was just like a special day. I'll always look back on, you know? Yeah. You could tell the, the emotion from that YouTube video, how fired up you were for that. It was an awesome video, fun one to follow. Yeah. So how, so what are you thinking about this, uh, like Nice and Kona split then for the, the years coming up? I think you still got a bunch of good years left, so maybe it's not a stress for you, but what's your kind of take on the, the back and forth flip? I don't like it. 
Uh, I, I won't race in Nice. Like, I'm not interested in racing in Nice. I've already raced in our Memorial Championship outside of Kona, and I didn't have a good experience. Um, potentially, if I, in, in, in coming years, maybe that will be the case. But, you know, my next Iron Memorial Championship, I would really like it to be in Kona. Like, you can never predict the future. Maybe you will see me in Nice come September. I, I don't know. I, I feel like a lot of times you set an idea of what you think the season's going to look like in your head. And then next thing you know, you're either in great shape or you have a great opportunity or it lines up that the field is, you know, actually looking pretty good and you want to go give it a shot or whatever the, the case may be. So I, I can't say with 100% certainty I will not be in Nice, but I'm not like super excited about that as or as excited about it as I would um, for something like Ironman Hawaii. So I think particularly for where I'm at, in my career, in my life, like I sort of do feel like I need um, a two-year block to be really competitive in Kona. I think even if let's the roles were reversed and the men were first in Kona this year and the women um, were in Nice, I would have probably been under the gun to be in a place where I could be getting like a top 10 or a top five. And, you know, my goal is to go to Kona and be as competitive as possible. I'm not just trying to just go plot around the course and say I finished it. Like, I'll only be satisfied there. I know if I'm really pushing it to the limit um, and I need two years to be, I think in order to get every piece of my game, right. Um, and we've seen that with results like, like a quarter lane or an Ironman like Plasted last year. Like I'm, I'm putting the pieces together individually, but I'm not getting the job done just yet at the Ironman distance. Um, I feel like I'm getting a better grasp on the 70.3s like we saw last year with all those podiums and a win. Um, but I need to prove it to myself that I can just like win a normal Ironman before I can say, oh, I want to be top 10 in Kona. And so that's what 2023 is about, like set the stage for a Kona preparation um, in 2024 and spend this year trying to win an Ironman. It's awesome. Um, so jumping to last year, uh, that Lake Placid, you're talking about learning from like Ironman events. What did you kind of take away from that event where you were like leading for a large part of the day? Like, put in a seriously yeah. gutsy performance, but just couldn't quite hammer it home in the end. What did you take home from that one that you think is really going to help you down the line? Iron Man exposes everything you got. It exposes every weakness, every chink in your armor. Like there's just nowhere to hide. It's just too long and it's just too hard. Like, and that was something I had fooled myself in the preparation. Um, I was fitter going into Ironman Lake Placid than I was going into Coeur d'Alene. Like I had more training, more volume, better cycling, better intensity control. Like I felt like we had a better grasp on what I needed to be successful in an Ironman, but there were some like glaring red flags that were sort of like looked over in that preparation. Um, and what I will say is for 92% of Ironman Lake Placid, like I felt the best I've ever felt in any race ever. So I was having the same sensations that I had in Coeur d'Alene 2021, um, where it's like an out of body experience. Like you're just like the power is just like, you think the power meter is wrong. You're just like, everything's just going to plan, right? Like, um, you know, swam at the front of the race, had control of the bike group. I was dictating pace for the whole first lap. We get to the second lap. I dropped the whole group on a descent, which was my plan A. I said to my dad when we were reconning it, I said, if I'm going to try and win, I need to drop them on the keen descent. Yep. Lap two, we get to the keen descent lap two. I get on my top tube. I drop everyone. I'm leading by two minutes, you know, at the bottom of a seven mile descent. So that's like, it was all just going to plan. And then uh, came off the bike with like a near 10 minute lead on Cody Veals, who was like pretty much my only threat for the win. And historically I've run quite well. Um, 
in Ironmans and 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 in seventy point threes, and I was I had trained to run at least a two forty five, so I kind of went out at that pace. But on the run, I had a bit of a reality check of okay, those sensations aren't necessarily flowing the same way that they were in a quarter lane or for the first six and a half hours of this race. It's not feeling quite the same, and I could feel things start to unravel like pretty early into the run, and then um, yeah, I just kind of held it together, but. Like I said, I, my Achilles was not right going into that. The whole season, it was off. And I think like that um, impacted my run stride, that impacted my like biomechanics. And I had like some compensation pattern going on um, between my calves and my quads where my calves weren't able to function. My calf, left calf wasn't firing the same way because I couldn't plant off of my left Achilles because it was so partially torn at that point or, you know, very inflamed or it was, it was off, it was hurting me. And so my quad was overcompensating. And then I was just having this like pretty intense quad breakdown. Um, so if you were watching the race, like that's pretty much what happened. Like I wasn't cramping or anything. Like my quads were just like beyond capacity, you know, like tank on empty zero left, um, just had been overworked from the compensation. So that was, that was a big frustration, but, um, you know, looking back on it now, like I know I've got the goods to win an Ironman, like just having been so freaking close. Um, and I feel like I know what the issues were. So hopefully going into 2023, we've got the fitness, we've got the plan. We know what we need to do. We've addressed the issues. My Achilles isn't torn anymore. My quads, we've doubled down and we've made them double as strong. <laughs> um, I'm doing everything I can. So, you know, given the information that I've got thus far. So um, hopefully in 2023, you'll see, um, yeah, a little bit more of a, you know, the gutsy performance, but with a win at the end, not a gutsy performance that, uh, yeah, ends in uh, tears. <laughs> <laughs> I think it'll be with you breaking the tape. I can see it already. Let's go. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> um, I wanted to ask you a little bit about, cause I have, uh, there's a couple athletes I coach that are like a couple bigger guys as well. And um you kind of talked about both Nice and St. George being races that maybe didn't necessarily like suit you that well. Um, would you say it's like necessarily, do you avoid hilly races at all? Or you have, you just adapted over time as a bigger athlete. What are some of those challenges that you've kind of uh, had to overcome as a bigger guy within triathlon? Yeah, I think, uh, I don't think I can use my, my height or weight as an excuse anymore because you've got Jan Ferdano, who's the exact same height as me. And you've got Christian Blumenfeld, who's the exact same weight as me. And Interesting. they're both, they're both some of the best in the world. So if you listen to any of the chatter amongst the Norwegian guys, like they, I don't think they pay a lot of attention to like body weight or body composition. Um, now that's still stuff that we're, you know, we pay attention to, but I, I think the best in the world are the best in the world, any place, any time, any condition, no matter what that being said, it's horses for courses. And, you know, there's a long running conversation of like, okay, if, if, um, our memorial championships were outside of Kona, would Craig Alexander have as many wins as he had that race was tailor-made for him. Would Miranda Carfrey have as many wins as she had, maybe, maybe they were the best in the world regardless at the time. But I do think horses for courses for some athletes. And, um, for me in my career where I'm at now, like, I, like I'm just still trying to break through. So I'm not at the place yet where I can be dominant at any race, at any condition, at any, any, um, you know, uh, climate and, and, um, part of the world. So I'm trying to just be maybe a little bit more selective of, okay, if you can only race two Ironmans a year, like, I don't want to waste one in Nice 
when right now I don't have the full toolbox to be as competitive as I want to. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I would rather go to an Ironman Wisconsin or Ironman UK Wales or um, uh, Ironman Florida at the end of the season. Like maybe those are hillier, maybe they're harder or whatever, but um, really the big di- differentiating factor is just the competition. So if I'm going to race, if I know I'm better at cooler, flatter rolling hills, like I would prefer to start there and be successful there before I say, okay, I want to go somewhere super hot, super, super humid, super hilly and try to race the best in the world. I think there's levels to this. And so I'm just trying to like take it one step at a time. Yep. I think we still have PTSD from that Wisconsin course a couple of years ago. That thing, that thing's <laughs> <Yeah>. mean. <laughs> have you done it before? It is. Uh, I have not, but as I was growing up, like, cause I was so close, we were only like 90 minutes away from uh, Madison there. So I would go up and that was actually one of the things that inspired me to become a professional triathlete was I saw Paul Ambrose and it must've been 2009 or 2010 when I'm in Wisconsin in like 850. And I was like, Oh my God, that's as fast as anyone can go. This is insane. Um, and that race inspired me to be a, be a pro. So I've never done it. And that I was actually set to do it last year, um, in my stubbornness with my Achilles or whatever, but I ended up like my Achilles had really gotten bad in August. And so I had to pull out of Wisconsin. Um, but that is on my like bucket list of must do before retirement. I got plenty of time though. Looked like they had a miserable day there last year. That was that like cold, rainy one. Good Canadian guy, Brent McMahon. He's like, oh, this is a nice oh, yeah. warm day. I'm going to take the win. <laughs> I would have no loved it too. I was kicking yeah. myself. I was like, oh, this is just my luck. Like, because I love the cold. I love rain. Like, uh, I don't mind the heat. I just like extremes. So like you saw Coeur d'Alene, for example, it was record high in Coeur d'Alene 2021. It was 105 degrees on the marathon. I just find for someone like me, I don't think I'm like oozing with triathlon talent. I think a lot of my stuff has come from like, year after year of just hard work and just like consistency. Um, like I didn't burst on the scene. I, I guess I burst on the scene if you look at it from some angles, but I mean that I was still training for eight years going into that breakout season. It was never, you know, what do they say? Like 10 years of work goes into the overnight success. And I feel like that's my, every time I have a big breakthrough, it's like, Oh, Justin's like hearing it has arrived or whatever. But I mean, it's been years and weeks and hours and, so much work that has, has gone up until that point. So, um, yeah. Year 10 is coming up. So I think it's just in time. Let's this, go. This is, yeah, <laughs> this is year 10. Is this, this must be year 10. Yeah. I'll have to count nine or 10. Another thing that I would add to that toolbox beyond just the consistency and the hard work is one thing that comes across very clearly with you is your mindset. You'd mentioned you're a glass half full person um, in your mindset and outlook. And even just the fact that you don't take, you know, it, you don't use anything as an excuse, even, even just your comment of, I love hills. I love extremes. That also can be a decision um, because yeah. you can just as easily tell yourself that you don't like those things and you just make it harder on yourself. So it's, it it's so interesting how you've sort of built almost a bulletproof outlook. Have you been intentional about that? Or is that just a part of who you are? Uh, I would say I'm like uh, somewhat intentional about it. Like I've always been really interested in psychology and sports psychology. Um, I had taken some sports psychology courses as part of my um, phys- exercise physiology degree at University of Iowa. Um, and I always just really loved that part of the game. And I think also it just came from like a pretty high level of self-awareness, like just knowing my journey and knowing my story and whatever, and just knowing that I wasn't like USA triathlon, um, had invited me to a camp in, I think 2011 or 2012, it's in San Antonio, Texas. And I remember I drove down there with my friend 
they did a swim test, bike test, and run test all on the same day. And there was like 10 athletes there. And at the end of the day, they kept five and then they just told five to go home. And so they told me to just leave. They were like, we're not interested in what you have as a talent or like a, as like a talent ID situation. And that just fired me up so much. And I said, all right, well, they might be right. Maybe I'm talentless. Maybe I'm not meant to do triathlon at all. Come to find out, I'm actually like probably a little bit, maybe pretty talented at long course triathlon. They weren't testing for that though, right? They were testing for short course. So yes, on paper, I'm not, I'm not set to do ITU by any means. Um, but I think I said to myself, all right, well, if, if I don't have the swim, bike or run talent on paper, um, not part of some sort of federation, not some super freak kid running tra track across the country or swimming. I don't have any of those backgrounds. All I can do is try to be the toughest dude out here. I can be the hardest worker. I can be as tough as anyone else. And I can just keep showing up every day. And I've just been doing that for 15 years. And so, I mean, that's gotten me everything I have up until this point, which it's obviously not where I want to go, but like, this is my job now. This is my career. Like it's a pretty freaking sweet way to wake up every day and say like, all right, well, the, my favorite thing to do in the world is something that actually gets me paid. Mm -hmm. Like I can continue doing what I'm doing. I don't think I need to reinvent the wheel. Like my mindset and my work ethic, those are the things that have gotten me all the success that I have had. Now I want a bunch more, but I still got what I got. And so I just got to keep showing up with what I've, what I've done thus far. And obviously you make adjustments in training and, and little tiny adjustments here and there, but I mean, I just got to keep doing the same stuff, you know? Those are great messages for athletes of any level. Just keep showing up and you'll get where you want to go. I was just That's it. That. It's simple. Yeah. What I love about that is it doesn't matter. I need, I understand that, you know, at a pro level, it is that consistency and hard work, but yeah, I am amateur athletes can just go out and bring that same grit and perseverance and keep getting better and growing as well. Um, yeah. We I think it's hard because this sport is really like, um, it's tough and we all have bad races and we all have bad training days and we all feel tired and we all want to quit and we all want to say this is too expensive or the races are too far away or this just, it's a brutal, it's a, it's a brutal sport. It really is like with a lot of investment of time away from, time away from family, a lot of like, you know, selfish, um, you need to be pretty selfish in order to be successful in this. And it takes a lot out of, of you, right? Like I've missed out on stuff because of this. Um, and I think that is where it's, I see it from age group athletes. Cause I coach, I have coached a lot in, in the past and I am still coaching a little bit now, like just making it sustainable is the toughest thing for athletes across any spectrum, whether you're trying to go 18 hours, 17 hours for an Ironman, or you're trying to go 7.30, like just trying to make it something that you can keep doing year after year, because that's the only way you're going to get better. There's no shortcuts in this. Hmm. Yeah, I think you definitely need to make it fun. How does, uh, like you obviously have a great training group with, uh, with Julie Dibbins and those other groups there. How do you like insert fun into this to, to keep it yeah, light and fun and keep wanting to come out every single day? <laughs> Yeah. I mean, for me, it's easy. Cause I, I, I love swim biking and running like no matter what. So even if I wasn't a pro and even if this wasn't my job, like I would just do this for fun as a hobby. Like I would probably still just train. I would be recreational. I'd be an age grouper. And like, even when I retire, like I'll still, I don't know how my, my body's probably going to be a mess by the time I'm like 40, but I don't know whatever I can do. I will do. I just love being outside. I love being in nature. Like I love chatting with my friends and, and hanging out with them. So we do have like an awesome training group here and 
you know, there's pros and cons to that, right? Like there, there are parts of a group training environment that, that can be a challenge, but I think the, for me, the pros always outweigh the cons on that. Um, just, you know, shared pain is half the pain. And so, um, I've been with Julie for a long time. I've been part of that crew for a long time. And, you know, there's athletes that come in and out that bring a new fresh perspective. And then you've got your, your staple athletes who have been there forever, like, you know, Matt Hansen and Tim O'Donnell and Dee Dee Griesbauer and these people, same attitude as me. We just keep showing up and, um, you know, some of these people in the training group are my, are some of my best friends. So like, I just, for me, that's the fun part is like just going out on a five hour ride tomorrow with Andre, my, my friend who's trained by Julia, like that, that's an ideal Sunday for me, you know, um, from a training perspective. And then I think the other big piece that I've been terrible at in the past that I'm trying to get better at is separating like my home and work life. And that's been a challenge for Jeannie and I, because, you know, Jeannie's one of the best triathletes in the world as well. Right. Like she's been on the podium at 70.3 worlds. Um, she's won like 12, 70.3s and she's an incredible athlete. So our household can be pretty intense and, you know, I'm going to be 30 in June. She's 31. Like we're trying to create some balance in our life in a super unbalanced sport. So in order for it to be fun and sustainable for us, like we've found that it's important to like go and train all day and then just come home and be like Jeannie and Justin, a married couple. So those are my two things. Try to make it fun with your friends and then try to have some balance, you know? So what does that balance <clears> look like for both of you to be professional triathletes when you come home at the end of the day? Like what's normal life look for, like for you? Well, we have like a sort of unwritten rule that we try to be done training by six. So I'll train most days from seven or 8 a.m. to about five or 6 p.m. Um, now I'm not training obviously consistently every hour, but it is mostly every day full on, like whether I'm commuting to training or preparing for the next session or eating or recovering or whatever, taking care of triathlon business stuff on the back end. Like I, our days are packed from seven to six and then six o'clock, we just try to like shut off our phones and just really connect with each other. Like we typically will cook dinner together. Um, yeah. Clean up, hang out, watch show together, spend time with our dog, like just try to really be present in the two or three hours that we have in the evenings um, before we go to bed early. But like, that's been the biggest thing that we've struggled with in the past is like, you know, we'd, we'd rush home and then we'd order food or whatever. And then we'd be watching triathlon content or we'd be, you know, working on training plans or logging our sessions or whatever. But now it's very much like, all right, six o'clock hits. Like we're not triathletes. We try not to be triathletes after six. I love that. So. Um, yeah. So like partnerships really important and I want to dig into a number of the ones that you have. I, I want to stay on Jeannie for a moment and just say, what does Jeannie bring you? Um, how does she make you a better triathlete? And then how does she make you a better person? Well, I think Jeannie and I are, are, are good for each other because we really do like, we push each other, you know, we push each other to, to be accountable, to be like the best version of ourselves. And I think when you're both trying to pursue something at like the absolute highest level, like there's a level of accountability that you have when you come home and like a world-class athlete sitting in front of you at the dinner table, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and so I think it's different from like someone else who, you know, when they come home, they have that reprieve, but that reprieve can maybe like pull you back a little bit. So there's definitely a fine line there. Right. Um, so that's definitely something that she does for me. What was the other question? Oh, how does she make you a better person? Uh, how does she make me a better person? Well, Jeannie is very kind and she's very caring and she's very supportive. And those are things that I don't know. I think I'm 
I've learned to be better at those things. And um, Jeannie feels things like emotions at a really high level. And I traditionally do not. And it's made me probably a better person to see the world through her eyes a little bit and like the struggles that she has to go through because um, yeah, she's had some barriers for sure. Like particularly in the last two years. And so I think that's made me a better person to just see the world through a different perspective than my own. Because like I said early, like my innate nature is to see everything glass half full, mm -hmm. but to have someone whose innate nature is not that that's a, that's been an eye opening. Um, kind of experience for me to have that as, you know, my life partner to say, all right, well, this person's struggles might be a lot different than mine, you know? Um, so I hope that that makes me better, more empathetic, more supportive. I'm still working on those things because they're not my like second nature, but um, yeah, I think that's what she's done. That's, a, that's incredible. And I often find that, you know, when you, when you seek out partnerships in life, um, your coach is sometimes almost like a marriage. Um, I'd love to know how you selected your coach and what that uh, relationship is like. Yeah, it is. It's funny. Yeah, because Jeannie and I, you know, I haven't had that many coaches in my career, um, but you get really invested with these people mm -hmm. because they mean a lot to you. And particularly at this level, because you place something so precious, like in their hands, like this is my life. This is my career. This is my livelihood. This is my happiness. Like so much is tied into what they put into training peaks and the environment and the culture that they create. Um, and so I've been really fortunate that I've had amazing guidance in my career. I've only had three coaches. Um, I have my local coach, um, a guy named Craig Strong out of Evansville, Illinois. Um, and before that I was coached by like my dad's coach. So this lady, Kate, when I was like a kid, Craig Strong, who took me all the way until my rookie pro season, Jesse Kropelnicki, for five years and now Julie's coming up on five years. So you commit to these people, like you're saying, like you do in a relationship and when you end the relationship, it's really tough. Um, but with Julie, that was sort of like an organic partnership. Um, when I moved out here to Boulder, I was still coached by Jesse, but she had a swim squad. Um, and so she allowed me to join their swimming group. She got to know me personally. She got to know my strengths and weaknesses in the pool, which obviously crossed over pretty, pretty well into the, into the bike and run. And then when I was looking for a change, um, end of 2018, she was just like a natural. That's where I wanted to be. She had the group here. She had the, the JD crew. Um, she was present in person. She could see me train. And uh, without a doubt, like Julie and I have had our struggles. Like we've been through the pandemic together. Um, you know, we've been through awesome breakthrough races like Coeur d'Alene. And we've had experiences like Lake Placid. And we've had races that have been great. And I would say most of them have been really, really good with Julie, but we've also had our really tough times. Um, and we've butted heads a couple of times as well, like, like any relationship would. Um, and we've had to work through that. But I think like, like, um, you know, like a marriage, when you, when you butt heads and, and you fight a little bit or you disagree or you argue, like you ultimately um, grow from that and become stronger. So I feel like Julie knows me better athletically than anyone knows me. Um, and I think that allows her like a, a lot of power to, um, to take me to the next level because, um, yeah, she knows me really well. Are there changes in your training that you've made since working with her? Uh, yeah, a, a ton. I, I mean, my, my, my training changes every year. Um, and I think if you're not evolving, you're probably getting left behind. And I think that's what you see. Um, that's how you've seen me sort of progress 
um, at the right amount every year. I feel like I've just gotten a little bit better every season. And I think it's because we're getting the, the correct input from, from Julie. Um, definitely in the early seasons, there was like a bit of a learning curve or, or whatever, but um, I, I would also like to say, like, I haven't only been coached by Julie, like Julie's a very collaborative coach. And I think she just really wants what's best for her athletes. So when I first started working with Julie in 2019, um, it was just her. So she did everything swim, bike, run. And then uh, at the time, my swimming and running were really strong. Um, Julie made my swim and run like bulletproof, but I was really struggling on the bike. And so I uh, I had hired a guy named Matt Bottrell, who's a cycling coach out of the UK. And Matt was pretty much writing my cycling plan with Julie doing the rest, but they had like a really good back-end communication because they coached uh, Tim O'Donnell, Matt Hansen, previously coached Tim Don. And so they had this like little subset group of athletes who they coached together um and sort of my motivation to go that way was sort of like well matt and tim are doing it <laughs> i mean what am i doing <laughs> right like that's been a lot of uh of my relation not my relationship but my my place in this squad was um learning a lot from matt and tim and i was just trying to absorb as much as i could from those guys like before they're gone and they're not, both of them are still going. Matt's still racing at a super high level. Tim is, um, you know, he was just top American in Kona. Like both these guys are doing great still, but you know, Tim's 42. And so I don't know how much longer he's going to race. Um, and so, yeah, like I, I was coached by Matt. And then um, just recently uh, in May, after St. George of last year, I, I decided to go a different direction from Matt. Um, and then I was back to getting coached by Julie exclusively. And that's when we saw this big uptick in my fitness. I felt like we were really making some good decisions. And then this year has been the newest phase of it where we've brought in uh, a guy named Jared Berg, who is sort of playing a similar role to what Matt did, but he's covering uh, everything swim bike and run. But his job is he's an exercise physiologist. He previously had worked for University of Colorado as their like in-house physiologist. And so now he is coaching um, myself, Andre, and a couple other athletes um, to just take things to the next level because that's the direction this is going is, you know, science is, is knowledge and, and knowledge is power. And with those things, hopefully we're trying to bridge a gap to the, you know, the guys who are, are winning the races now. So in terms of overall training, you mentioned back in like high school, you were doing 20, 25 hours of training. Um, what does that kind of look like in uh, in your current training, like, are you up and are you in that like 30 plus hours? Have you found like you're the, um, more the high intensity or the higher volume? Have you found, uh, um, one thing works better for you over another? Yeah, I'm definitely falling like the high, high ish volume category. I wouldn't say like extreme volume. Um, but yeah, I would say like average is about 30 hours a week. Um, and that includes like right now in this phase, like without running, and so, uh, or like very, very minimal running volume. Like I'm running about 20 to 25 miles a week right now, which is what's that like 40 K a week, um, which in the scope of what would normally be about a hundred K a week of running or 60 miles, like it's, it's on the low end, but to, as I'm ramping back up my, my fitness, um, but you know, we've replaced that with additional swimming and, and cycling. So I've always felt like I, I fall more into the, into the higher volume category, but I think that just falls back on like my personality of just like, I really like to be consistent. Um, and we don't follow like a traditional periodization in the sense of like uh, four, three weeks on one week off type situation. Like I'm, I've pretty consistently done 30 hours a week for like the better part of the last two years. Mm -hmm. Um, and 
obviously we take down weeks, recovery weeks, you know, going into races, taper weeks, recovery weeks coming out of Ironmans. And then Julie's coaching because she's here and she sees us every day. Her coaching is like extremely intuitive. So she just looks at you and is like, oh, this athlete smoked or this athlete athlete failed a workout. Okay. You get three days off. Like, I think we, we have a, we have an advantage there in the sense of um, it doesn't have to be planned recovery necessarily. Um, we're just trying to, I think there is some planned days in there for sure to get ahead of it. But I think she's very much like, well, if this athlete's rolling, then let's let them roll. And um, yeah, I think just back to your point of the, since I was a kid, I was looking back on this. I would say my weekly average training volume, including rest days, taper, off seasons, everything. I think I probably averaged o- over 20 hours a week of training for probably 15 years. Wow. That adds up consistently. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like take the, take the weeks of, okay, maybe I was doing 15, 20 in the early days and now I'm doing more like, you know, thirties or whatever. But I think that I, I always like to say that in these things because, um, I, it just shows that like, yeah, I mean, I've, I'm beyond my 10,000 hours and I'm still not even like where I, I want to be or, or where I want to go for me. It might take 30,000 hours of, of training, you know, um, in order to get to get to being one of the best in the world. But yeah, that's kind of where I'm at now. Do you have a favorite training session or favorite workout? I do. Uh, here in Colorado, we're spoiled with like the best cycling in the world and the best running in the world. So my favorite bike workout is probably my favorite training day. Get up early in the summer on the road by like seven, a ride from my house, just west straight up into the mountains. And then I ride at the high altitude peaks, Peaks Peak Highway, uh, north to Estes Park. And uh, I drop down from Estes back kind of into Boulder. And then I'll meet up with either my dad or um, I pay this guy who helps me out to get on the on the scooter and do a little motor pacing. And oh. so we've got like amazing time trialing around here. So that's what makes Boulder great because you can be you know in Estes Park in two hours or three hours cycling. And then you can come down and have some of the best time trialing, like uninterrupted, no cars, big shoulders, like you could do an hour without seeing a car getting interrupted. So go out there, do a little motor pacing and then come back and do like an hour in Ironman race pace on the run. That would be like, that'd be like an ideal Wednesday or Saturday for me to like train for like seven hours and uh, have a nice stop and have like some good, you know, nice Coke, nice cold Coke in the summer. Like that, that's my favorite day. Oh man, we need, we need to move to Boulder. Maybe we can like modify our birth certificates and win the pro project next year. The waterfall yeah. bank pro project. Just got to totally. turn it we'll back. You got some visas. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you talked about Perfect. strength. Um, how do you integrate that into your training? Yeah, it's, uh, that's a super important, uh, point of my training. Like I've always been a big advocate for strength. Um, pretty much my whole career. My mom was a personal trainer when I was growing up, we had a gym in our basement. Like, that's always been sort of in my um, yeah toolbox of things that I'm doing pretty consistently. So I worked with Aaron Carson, um, who's a pretty well-known strength coach uh, based here in Boulder out of Rally Sport, EC Fit, like for probably six years. And she helped me like so much. She really was like family to Jeannie and I. Um, and then, you know, like any coach athlete relationship, like I think at some point you just need a change of stimulus and, so middle of the summer last year, sort of after I had those quad issues, um, I decided to make a change. And so now I'm working with a new guy. Um, his name's Keith. Uh, he's a little underground, but he's growing his business now, higher ground athletics. And um, yeah, I see him twice a week in person. And then a new thing for me is he gives me homework every day. 
So I'm doing like between 10 and 30 minutes of sort of like homework type stuff every day. And right now that's very much Achilles calf strength focused as we're rehabbing my calf. And, you know, we're doing a bunch of stuff to try and bridge the gap to running. Like when I can run again, um, full, you know, with all the full training volume or whatever, and it's not, it's not limited. Like I'm really resilient in like my quads and hip flexors and glutes and hamstrings and stuff. So, um, I definitely think we're pushing the limit, Keith and I, of what's like, um, he likes to say, cause he comes from a CrossFit background and, and I think, you know, he's been in the bodybuilding world and, um, definitely like more specific, like power strength, um, athletes. And he's like, we just want to like get right to, to like power lifting or traditional strength training and just touch it a little bit. You know what I mean? Just enough as an endurance athlete. So that's kind of where we are now where I'm, I'm doing deadlift and I'm doing hack squats and I'm doing stuff at like heavy, heavy weight. Um, but with the objective of making my legs and, and quads really bulletproof for Ironman racing. Brilliant. Um, that's strength is so important because especially as you do the Ironman, you're going to start breaking down. And I feel like it's so clear which athletes are doing their strength. Um, as you watch even the form in a race, um, yeah. you had mentioned earlier that you had sort of disregarded nutrition and recovery earlier on in your career. Would love to know, how do you approach that now? We'll start with nutrition. Like what does your, what's your philosophy and approach for the nutrition, um, while you train? Yeah, that's changed quite a lot. Um, I think some through trial and error, some through more research coming out, some through, you know, more resources at my disposal. Um, I think in the past, I've gone through phases of, I would say overall right now with all of the experience and knowledge that I have for probably 10 to 12 of the 15 years that I've been doing triathlon, I've probably underfueled my training. And it's not until the last two years when I've really realized how much it takes to fuel the training that I'm doing. And so my current philosophy, which is, I think the correct one, which it might change in another five years, I don't know. But with the information that I have now, I eat as much as I possibly can, pretty much at all times. And that's the philosophy. Like as much carbohydrate as I can pretty much consume during training and pretty much as much carbohydrate and protein and, and a little bit of fat outside of training, um, just to supplement the, the amount of workload that I'm doing. And I've noticed a massive improvement in my training and my recovery and my sustainability by just simply eating enough. Um, and I don't think athletes really understand like how much you burn when you go ride five hours or you go do an, a two and a half hour threshold ride or whatever. Um, like a, a good example, uh, you know, this morning I had two and a half hour ride with the threshold that I was telling you guys about, and I'm doing like 110 to 120 grams of carbohydrate per hour. And I'm fortunate to have a nutrition sponsor because that can, you know, you can rack up some bills on gels and blocks and sports drink or whatever, but <laughs> I, I, yeah, I'm having, um, 130 grams of sports drink mix. So that's like, you know, three to four scoops in each one of my bottles and then three gels. And something I've been doing this year is I've just been having like 150 mil of pure Canadian maple syrup. And I just have that while I train because it's like super concentrated in calories and carbohydrate. Um, and then throughout the day, I'm just eating like the most carb rich stuff that I can possibly find. Um, it's probably not good for my teeth. It's probably not good for my health and whatever. I, I still try to eat like Jeannie balances me out that way. I think like you said, uh, you know, another way that she helps me tremendously is like, she's a, 
she comes at it from like a, a different perspective. I, I think she's learning that this, how important it is to fuel her training as well. But she would say, I would say she's a pretty healthy eater. And so she's, you know, bringing in, uh, I'm not eating crap. You know what I mean? Like I'm eating like good, high quality carbohydrates, um, whether that's rices or pastas or, um, you know, high quality fresh made bread or, um, you know, good lean proteins and plenty of like fruit and vegetable. Like we're trying to get like four fruits and four vegetables every day, like stuff like that's important, but I don't think it's rocket science. Like you don't need to be keto. You don't need to be low carb. You don't need to be any of this. You just need to eat enough to fuel your training and have enough protein to recover. Like otherwise you're overcomplicating it. I think, I think, I think it's one of the reasons I love triathlon the most is because it's, it might be one of those very rare sports. It is an endurance sport, but there is such a push to eat a lot of food. Um, it's almost mm -hmm. notoriously that triathletes eat uh, a lot, especially with those long bike rides. So um, your philosophy sounds spot on from anything that I've heard from the top pros. Um, and from what we've learned over the last number of years too, for sure, we would have been in the same boat and that's one big, yeah. the biggest change to our performance and recovery. So I know we're on board. I do that. think there's a lot of um, discussion around like uh, exogenous ketones, ketosis, low carb training. You know, Sam Long is doing a lot of that right now. He's doing yeah. a lot of super low carb training and um, we're going the opposite way. Uh, you know, all of the advice that I've been getting recently is fuel your training and train your gut to absorb as much as possible. Now, that's going to be super individualized. So that training plan, that prescription comes from the, the, the backbone of like the metabolic testing that we've done. You know, we, we, we know how many grams of fat I'm burning at different intensities. We know how many grams of carbohydrate I'm burning at different intensities. So if you're someone who doesn't burn fat very well, you probably do need to train that. So I'm not by any means poo-pooing what someone who's using exogenous ketones or trying to get into ketosis or trying to, you know, increase their fat burning. Like if that's what you need, then do it. But I, I don't think it's fair or smart for like an age group athlete uh, to say, Oh, well, Sam long trains low carb. Maybe I should too. Like you should only be doing that if you know, if there's a reason why, you know, I was just going to say that I, it, again, not to um, discredit um, a professional athletes approach or diet, but they're a professional athlete. So Sam long has uh, nutritionists. He has the support around him. He has more time in the day, I would say, to focus on these things. Whereas if, uh, you know, an age group athlete is trying to take that on, plus have a busy job, plus raise kids, plus do all these things, the likelihood of an approach like that versus an approach like you take is that they're going to underfuel, they're going to miss something and would actually potentially do more harm than good. Um, it works, but when you when you make those significant tweaks you've just got it you've got to nail it and uh there's yeah. it's plus maple syrup is a lot more fun <laughs> <laughs> yeah my mom like she can't wrap her head around that like because uh my parents actually live here they live down the street they they, they moved here because they they lived in all over for work or whatever and then they moved out here and they were like ah we want to support justin and Jeannie a little bit more so they're like instrumental in making sure like our ship runs uh properly and so she does the costco maple syrup runs and she doesn't understand that i like drink it out of the <laughs> container she doesn't understand like how why that it would be like something that you need to do but oh my gosh um, mark is gonna do it this works 100 <laughs> you should have and it's the way your training is gonna go through the moon to the moon now you're gonna be flying <laughs> he thinks i haven't already done that in the past so that's the i've got you gotta one have enough you gotta have enough though yeah you gotta go with like a solid amount you know let's talk about recovery so sleep 
all of the different things that you do around to make sure that you get back to the best possible state to crush your next workout? What does that look like for you? Yeah, I think like the, again, like for my, my philosophy where I'm at now is just get the basics, right. You know, um, you know, I think it's, it's important to sit in the boots. I think it's important to mobilize. I think it's important to, um, to do all these things, but I think like number one, eat enough, eat enough carbs, eat enough protein and then sleep as much as you can. Like that's, that's pretty much it. Um, and then the third one would just be like, make sure you're adequately hydrated. So those are the things that I'm paying attention to all day. Like, and it's, I'm not trying, I'm not sitting here trying to calculate or whatever. Like, I'm just really trying to check in with my hydration status, stay on top of it all day long, never feel dehydrated ever, never feel like I'm bonking ever, never feel super depleted, um, always have snacks with me and, and post-workout fuels and, and stuff like that. And I think like, yeah, and as long as you sleep like a good amount and get like as much REM sleep, create a really good sleep environment create a really good sleep habit. Like Jeannie and I are very like habitual with our, um, you know, evening routine to try and set us up to have like a really good night's sleep. And so, I mean, those are, those are our focuses, just keeping it simple and just keeping it basic, just do the basics, right. It's going to take you really far. What is your evening routine? Like I said, we try to take turn our phones off or be off of our phones. Jeannie's way better at it than me. Like sometimes I get a little sneak peek, see if anyone's, you know, hollering at me. Um, but yeah, like, the devices um before bed and then yeah we'll just eat clean up shower from the day hang out and just like watch a show and and just chill and then uh yeah try to like just get really tired like on the couch and then like super sleepily do our little uh, evening routine let the dog out and <laughs> take our vitamins and brush our teeth and just try to be in bed by like we try to go to sleep at like nine um because we wake up at like i would say six thirty is our average so if we were in bed from we try to be in bed from like between nine and 10 hours a night. And, you know, I, I, you're not, we've got our, you know, sleep tracking devices and this and that. You're not sleeping all 10 hours of that. Right. Um, but if we're getting, if I'm getting eight to eight and a half hours of sleep, I'm killing it. Absolutely. Um, I want to take a, I want to go back to, uh, you had mentioned, you know, Tim O'Donnell, Matt Hansen, Rinny, you know, you've surrounded yourself with such an incredible group of people. I'd love to know, you know, what is the, your day-to-day -day relationship and what have they given you as, uh, you know, people that you've uh, trained with and also, you know, looked up to in the sport? Yeah, I mean, I guess I'll start with like my, my closest relationship is, is with Tim, Tim O'Donnell. Um, yeah, I mean, Tim's one of my best friends. Like, I love that guy and um, I kind of think of him as like an older brother and he really is like a mentor to me. And I think when I first got here, like I definitely wanted to immerse myself in, in this community. And I think I probably came on a little bit strong, like trying to hang out with these people and trying to train with them and trying to just like get in their training environment. They were like, who is this kid? He's like in my face every two seconds. But I think like my persistence paid off a little bit because, you know, I think they got to know me and they got, they got, you know, a lot of these people who are really successful, like you have people coming in and out of your life consistently, like constantly, like people who want something or people who are trying to use you for something, whether it's for training, you know, train with you and get, to, you know, Instagram or they trying to get a sponsorship connection or whatever. Like, I think someone like Tim or, or someone like Matt realized, like, I've got no ulterior motives here. Like, I just want to train. I'm just here to train. I'm not trying to get your sponsorship contract. I'm not trying to get you to pay for anything. I'm not trying to get anything out of you except for just, I just want the experience. I just want to listen. And I just want to watch. And I think Tim valued that. Um, 
And so 2018, 2019, he was a little bit, I think, wishy-washy on me. Like, ah, who's this kid? Like, I don't know about him or whatever. But then during the pandemic, like, um, you know, we got pretty close and we were kind of like, we were training together a whole bunch outdoors and, um, yeah, we like did a little quarantine camp together and, uh, me, Jeannie and, and Tim and Marinda and baby Izzy at, at the time. And, um, you saw some videos, I think those were on YouTube and like, I just got to know him really well. And we just spent hours together just training. And then he had his heart attack. And I think that even brought us closer together and, um, yeah, I mean, it's just like an awesome, he's taught me so much, like how to be a pro, how to deal with sponsors, how to make a life in this, how to make it sustainable. Like they're, him and Rini are amazing role models. Like I feel like Jeannie and I aspire to be them so much, right? Like they, they have so much, they have, you know, world titles, they've got sponsors, they've got a family, they've like seemingly, they have, so, they have a bunch to, to look um, look up to but I think also we've realized that we are not them and so that was something early when we started to get to know them more I think we wanted to just be them so badly that we were just like copying whatever they do but you know in the last couple of years we've just taken a step back and said like okay those guys are amazing in so many ways but we have to find our own path and and things that um you know are going to make Jeannie and Justin you know the best people and that that we can be but um yeah I just I really value Tim's friendship more than anything and everything I've learned from him professionally is just icing on the cake because he's just a good man. And yeah, that's that. <laughs> so you've had some great role models and now you're probably getting a chance to kind of be a role model for some of those upcoming pros. Like you have the uh, pro project with the uh, waterfall bank team there. Tell me a little bit about like what waterfall banks doing, doing first to like support pro triathletes and a little bit of like what the the pro project's been like uh, as you've had these two new athletes kind of integrate into the system? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, first and foremost, Waterfall is has been an absolutely instrumental part of me being able to have a serious career in this. Um, I think not only are they the first ones to really bring in like pretty significant financial backing to the sport with things like the couples try last year and then the Waterfall Racing Pro Team, um, but they've just they're creating an awesome culture of like community and friendships and just connections all across the world. And so I've been really fortunate to be part of the team from its inception. I've worked with Waterfall Capital Investment as a sponsor since 2020 and Waterfall Bank as a sponsor through 2021. And so I've sort of been there through every inception. I just am really proud to be, you know, an ambassador for that brand and, you know, the newest project, um, that the the owner and founder of, of waterfall is is you know putting a lot of energy into is this pro project and it's been kind of a unique experience for me I'm, i don't know i don't know how i feel about it but i've always been the young guy looking for mentorship and now here i am providing mentorship mm -hmm. and i'm like how did i get here like where did 10 years go and I'm like, is this what it's like to be old? I don't know. I still feel like I'm young. I'm 29. And now next, like I'm giving these people advice like I'm Tim to me. And so I sort of, you know, again, I'm thankful for Tim because he showed me what a good mentor looks like. So that's what I'm trying to do. Now, on the other hand, you know, I think he had, you got to kind of feel people out a little bit. Cause I think there's a lot of people who want attention and they want, they want to ride with you and they, they want information and, and whatever. But, you know, we're really fortunate in the sense that, um, uh, you know, with Josh and Caroline, the two winners of the pro project, like we selected them ourselves. So out of all of the applicants, like us, the athletes um, decided who the winners were. So oh, Josh has, 
yeah, I've been I've been um, fortunate to spend a lot of time with Josh. I haven't gotten to know Caroline very well, but after this meeting, we're actually going to a lunch with the with the two of them. After this podcast, we're going to a meeting with them just to to get to to know them a little bit more. And um, I've spent a ton of time with Josh since he got here, and I just have nothing but like really positive things to say about the kid. Like um, talent off the charts, really strong, um, really great personality, and he reminds me of me so much. Like he's just willing to learn. He's willing to listen. He's just watching. And you can just tell this kid is just absorbing everything like a sponge. And that's what I want to see from any kid who I'm going to give my like mentorship to. I think it's, there's time and place to ask questions. There's a, there's a time and place to be really like super excited and, 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 and buzzy. But I think a lot of the times you've got to like, shut up, do the training alongside me, be there to support this and just watch. And that's what he's doing. So I give the kid a lot of respect because, um, because I think he's doing it the right way. And so he, Andre and I petitioned for him to get coached by Julie and she accepted. And so he's getting coached by Julie now. And so he's there, uh, you know, pretty much every day with us. And so my hope is that he learns something and that he doesn't get so fast that he kicks all of our asses. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that young blood look out for them. Yeah, he's coming. Cool. As we wrap up here, I'd love to hear um, what do you have in store for 2023? Like you're coming back from an injury here. Do you have any like races on the calendar already? And kind of what are the big goals for this year? Yeah, well, I, you know, some of the the early season is going to be just dependent on, on you know, my recovery here. Um, I would say I'm like 80% through the recovery cycle, 80 to 85%. I think our objective is to be running about 40 to 50 miles a week by April 1st. Um, and if I'm doing that, I think I can ramp up my volume and, and get fit enough on the run to begin racing in mid-May, but we're just going to have to see kind of how things go so far. Everything has gone perfect and on schedule, but, um, I didn't, I didn't end up getting a surgery. I, I ended up getting something called PRP treatment or they, yeah, injected my Achilles with uh, plasma rich protein and uh, platelets. I don't even know. Um, anyways, they required quite a lot of time off of, of running and like a really slow rehab, but, um, my hope is that by April 1st, I'm back to sort of full capacity and that will be 16 weeks of, of rehab to the back. And then, um, I don't really care about the races in May, um, and early June. Um, I, I'm going back to Coeur d'Alene. Like that is my big target for the year. Um, my hope is that I can get fit and healthy enough to get back there. Now I, I'm not going to be dumb. Like I was last year, like just set a goal and commit to it regardless of my health. I'm going to put health first this year. So if that gets pushed back and I have to select, select a different Ironman, like Ironman, like Placid or whatever, I'm I'm going to be fine with that. But right now, as long as we're trending on the right track, um, you'll see me in Coeur d'Alene going for the win. Well, can't wait to cheer you on. Um, yeah, thank you. Right before we land this plane, um, you, you began sort of talking about the fact that it was your dad who got you into triathlon. And you sort of mentioned that he was there to, you know, scope out the course um, what role does he play now that you're a professional triathlete in your life? Yeah, I mean, he's huge, you know, like he's, he's there, um, pretty much all the time. Like I said, he's down the street. So he's constantly helping us with like him and my mom are, are both helping us with just like day-to-day -day stuff. Like they cook us a meal once or twice a week when we're just too tired to do so. And, um, they look after our dog, like pretty much all the time when we're training hard. And, um, my dad's there to, you know, just help and support my training as much as possible. Like he still works full time. So, um, he works from home and he works on East coast hours. So he's, he works from like 4am to like 3pm. 
And so any training session that I'm doing after three, like he's there on the bike, like we've got him an e-bike. So he's got bottles and he's testing lactate and he's providing, you know, support out there for whatever we might need. And he really takes on a bigger role in the summer. Like right now, a lot of the trainings, you know, sort of indoors, sort of base training, maybe a little bit less specific or whatever. But when it comes to the race specific training, like, I mean, he's there for any of the sessions that Julie's not there. So it's really amazing to have him. Amazing. Uh, the final yeah. question we love to ask is, you know, we invited you on because you're one of our endurance icons, um, but we'd love to know who is yours. Ah, uh, probably Jeannie. She's an icon. <laughs> yes, she is. <laughs> yeah. I mean, amazing athlete, great wife, um, you know, my best friend. And like, yeah, I think she's got so much to give this sport in this world. Um, and so, yeah, she's had her, her struggles here in like the last year or two, but like she's on the comeback train. And so, yeah, she inspires me to be, be better. And, um, yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing what she can do. And then yeah, close seconds to you. I already explained why he's an icon. <laughs> <laughs> well, shout out to Jeannie. We can't see what you, uh, yeah. wait to see what you both, uh, do this year. And, uh, I think it's, we're going to see some big things from both of you in the next few years. We're going to try. We're going to keep showing up. That's the way to go. Um, how can people follow along with your journey? Yeah, just best ways on Instagram. Um, yeah, Big Mets try. Um, yeah, and I always try to like do my best to respond to any sort of questions or, or comments or, or anything on there. Like I know like maybe you guys found me through the YouTube channel. Like we are trying to do more on the YouTube side of things. Like it is, it's hard work to get those videos up out and out consistently. Um, but like, I do think there's high value there and people like get invested in the journey and whatever. So, um, yeah, I'm still working with Kenny. You're going to see his content and, um, yeah, hopefully we can get some YouTube stuff out for the people. So on YouTube as well, if uh, we get some videos out. Yeah. Follow on YouTube, follow on Instagram. Um, thank you so much, Justin. It was wonderful to have you on the show. Pleasure to meet you guys. And yeah, thanks for having me on. Wow. How great was that? I always learned so much from these endurance icons. If you enjoyed the podcast as well, please consider liking us across social media, subscribing to us on YouTube, or giving us a five-star rating on wherever you listen to your podcasts. We appreciate you and your support so much. We wish you happy training and we'll see you back next week.